Hebrews 4, and um, what I'd like to do, guys, is read this chapter in its entirety and ask you to engage it with me and receive it, hear it, um, and then uh, we'll talk about it. Hebrews 4. Everyone there? Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard, it's talking about the people in the wilderness after leaving Egypt, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Just about every quote throughout this chapter is from Psalm 95, the biggest quote of which comes earlier. If you just look over there in chapter 3, you can see about four verses from Psalm 95 that the writer, we don't really know who wrote Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews quotes. And throughout chapter 4, he's quoting bits of what he's already quoted from Psalm 95. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, this is Genesis 2, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. I'm sorry, but let me interrupt myself once more. Ask yourself as we read this, what do you think is the one big point of Hebrews 4? That's what I'm going to try to get at here, not verse by verse anything. I can't do that because some of these verses, I don't know what he's talking about. But I think I do get the big point of this chapter. So ask yourself, what's the big idea here? If you had to boil it down. They shall not enter my rest, verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day Later on. So then, verses 9 and 10 are really where I want to camp out the most. So then, there remains, a, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God According to Genesis 2 earlier, rested from his. Six days of creating work and then rested on the Sabbath. 
Let us therefore, so there's the doctrine, here's the the application, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, very paradoxical, strive, strain, to get in a place of not straining. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God I can't resist this, but this is not talking um, about the Bible. Though we quote this to say, well, you know, this book is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is the same Greek word, the word of God, used earlier in verse 2 of this chapter. For good news came to us, the gospel came to us just as then, but the message, the logos, same Greek word, the word, the gospel, This Greek word clearly in verse 2 means the gospel message. I assume, um, unless I have evidence that would direct me otherwise, and I don't think we do, that he's using it the same way 10 verses later. For the gospel, the message, nothing I'm going to say depends on that, so if you disagree, please don't get derailed here. Um, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, just gets way down deep inside us, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. By the way, as I read that second to last verse, verse 15, if you think Jesus was tempted in every way as I am, there's no way if he didn't have sin, he's tempted to do some of the things that I am. If you think that, remember, C.S. Lewis points out, when you are tempted, as soon as we sinners capitulate and give in to that temptation, we no longer have the temptation. The intensity dies away. We gave in to it. Jesus never gave in. So he therefore experienced the temptation to the maximal intensity that anyone ever could because he never gave in. Okay, what's the big point of Hebrews 4? The big point. Here's how I would put it. The people of God in the Old Testament, after leaving Egypt under Moses... Wandering around for 40 years, Moses dies, and Joshua brings them into the promised land. The people of God entered the promised land, which, as far as they were concerned, was finally the land of rest. They finally had rest. But actually, I think what this chapter is saying is, actually, they didn't. They, they had rest. Maybe, maybe I mentioned this last night um, or alluded to it. They had rest circumstantially. 
around them, politically, internationally. They had rest, they had peace. But they didn't have rest on the inside. In other words, um, verse 8. For if, if Joshua had given them rest, that's why I draw the conclusion they didn't have rest, really. Because he says, if Joshua had given them rest, assumption underlying that is, they didn't have it. So in other words, here's the writer of the Hebrews writing to the, this church, quoting Psalm 95, and he's saying, if here is the point in the sweep of, of the history of redemption, the Old Testament, here's the point where Moses and then Joshua finally lead them into the promised land. And then centuries later, here's the point where David sits down and writes Psalm 95. If they really got rest here with Joshua, the writer is saying, then why, when David sits down to write Psalm 95, does he say, today you need to get rest? In other words, they got rest around them in their circumstances, but they didn't get rest within them. There was a rest still awaiting them that, as we said last night, they resisted. There was a peace awaiting them that they were obtuse to, that eluded them. They were like the World War II soldier, have you heard about this, um, who never heard the war ended. Uh, my dad told me about this um, he discovered, heard about this and related. I looked into it, and uh, I mean, unless this is a huge hoax, it sounds legit to me. This guy, uh, Hirao Anoda was his name. He was a Japanese soldier, 1944-45. He's on a, an island in the Philippines. And uh, the Allies are coming there, taking over this island. I don't remember the name of the island, but um, Hirao Anoda, O-N-O-D-A was his name. He's with his buddies there, his, his comrades. You know, they're getting buried deeper and deeper in the bush because the Allies are encroaching. Every one of his friends dies, gets killed. He gets buried deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, he's back there, he's fighting, you know, and so on. Eventually, 1945, summer comes, the war ends. He never hears, he never gets word that the war ended. He keeps... He keeps fighting for 30 years. 30 years. 1974. Uh, he doesn't come out until 1974. I, I couldn't believe this when I heard it, but I think this is actually true. He, was, uh, he survived. He was taking pot shots at farmers. He was stealing food. Um, he was, uh, they brought in, the Japanese armed military brought in loudspeakers to the edge of the jungle and, and spoke to him, asking him to come out. Anoda, the war is over. He didn't believe it. They sent planes overhead, dropping leaflets with newspaper clippings that the war had ended. And he didn't come out because he thought it was Allied propaganda trying to trick him. He didn't come out until they, got, they flew in his former commanding officer, General Taniguchi, who came in and um, walked into the jungle, ordered him to lay down his arms and come out, and then he finally did. 1974. He was an old man. 
He wasted, guys, he wasted his life not realizing peace, rest had come. We can do the same thing. Hebrews 4 is saying, don't be like the Israelites, don't be like Hara'o Anoda, not realizing peace has been announced. Rest has come. Real rest has come. So what I want to do here is tackle this in three ways. Number one, the lie that we tend to believe about rest and how we get it. Two, the way in, excuse me, the whole Bible and rest, the whole Bible and rest. Three, the pathway of rest. You'll see what I mean as we get to each of these. First, the lie about rest. Here's the lie, the the untruth that we believe, that I'm tempted to believe every morning when I roll out of bed. We think... When I get, we think just like the Israelites going into the promised land, we think when I get my circumstances aligned the way I want them, then I will be okay. Then I'll have rest, peace. We think if I can just manipulate my circumstances in my job and marriage, friendships, finances, future, to get them a certain way, Then, I can finally be all right. The anxiety will stop. The the franticness will slow down. Um, And Hebrews 4 is saying, no. The way it works with the gospel is, what we can do is freely, because of what another has done in our place, the last paragraph of the chapter, we can freely have rest inside us, and then it doesn't matter what hell takes place on the outside, we will be stable. Could it be that if you are, as I often am, up and down and up and down, emotionally, just all over the place, could it be because you are looking to the nicotine of high, of positive circumstances to get you up. And then when you don't have it, you're down. Instead of taking refuge in the gospel, which says, it's settled, you're in, everything is okay, you're united to Christ by the Spirit, you are invincible. Nothing can hurt you because you are in Christ You have no approval you need to win. You're already approved. You you have no money you need to stockpile. You have all the riches and you are an heir. All things are yours, 1 Corinthians 3. Get rest on the inside and then circumstances do bring pain. I don't mean to be stoic or anything like that. It does bring pain, but they can't touch us on the inside. It can't hurt us. Don't you guys know how you can work 70 or 80 hour work weeks. You can do that and be at rest. Or you can uh, be on vacation at the beach and be in haste and not at rest on the inside. There is no direct one-to-one correspondence between what's happening inside and what's happening in our hearts. So here's what we're all walking around thinking. Here's the lie. Once I get blank, 
then I will be at rest. What is, what is it for you? Once I, for a lot of us, it's really one thing we are after. Once I get blank, then I will be really, in a sense, justified. Then I'll be okay. Then I'll be validated. My life will matter. If you don't know uh, what that might be for you, two, two clues, it's not infallible, but two clues are, number one, your checking account. Number two, your Google search history. What you spend your money on and what you browse the web looking at are not necessarily, but might be, indicators of where you are seeking rest apart from Christ. So not you might love to fish and you spend a ton of time on BassPro.com and that might not be an idol. It might not be something where you're psychologically seeking rest. But just ask yourself, what do you spend your money on and what do you look at on your screen? Um, some of you might remember when Jordan, uh, Michael Jordan, gave his Hall of, Hall of Fame um, induction you know, acceptance speech. Did you see that? Uh, in the fall of 2009, I think it was. Uh, there's been a lot of hoopla around him because he just turned 50. Um, and so a lot of interviews and, and reflections and so on. I remember watching that. You can go see it on YouTube. 23 minutes. And right at the very end of Jordan's Hall of Fame speech, he puts words to exactly what I'm talking about. He describes what all of us tend to do. He was a miserable man, if you saw him in that. And he's been becoming more and more miserable. He didn't seem this way so much when he was playing, don't you think? But he's just a, um, and I've heard he is a real jackass to be around. I mean, he, he is he could not be more um, egotistical and uh, domineering. Anyway, here's, here's what he said um, at the very end. This is about minute 21 if you go watch it on YouTube. As I close, and hear his voice saying this, as I close, the game of basketball has been everything to me. My refuge My place, I've always gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. He's using the language of the Psalms to talk about this game on which he built his identity. If I just get, then I'll have rest, is what he thought. And he got it. And he's as empty as ever. Uh, My refuge, my place I've always gone when I needed to find comfort and peace, it's been a source of intense pain and the source of the most intense feelings of joy and satisfaction. Yeah. One that no one can even imagine. It's been a relationship that's evolved over time and has given me the greatest love and respect for the game. I don't look at this moment as the defining, very interesting, I don't look at this moment as the defining end to my relationship with the game of basketball. He can't let it go. This is simply the continuation of of something that I started a long time ago. One day, you might look up and see, see me playing the game at age 50. A few weeks ago, there was a long article on ESPN.com. And I can't remember who, who did it, but it was very sobering and penetrating 
what he was saying. He said, for example, how can I find peace, find rest, away from the game of basketball? He said, reflectively. He never had peace, did he? We, we never will find it. I mean, talk about the pinnacle of what a man might set out in his life to accomplish. He had it. Everything. And he is empty and miserable. He sought refuge. That's his own word. Refuge in something other than Christ. Now we do this, we all do this, but Jordan was just simply more open about it than most of us are. Let me give you a little bit of personal narrative from me in this regard. This is just one example among many. Um, I went to um, Wheaton Grad School after uh, uh, Covenant Seminary with Dan and Wheaton College before that. And um, I had, all through college and through seminary, um, habitual sin in my life. I had, um, I had a massive desire to be liked, to be, to be approved by men. Um, I felt like I was just much of the time a walking courtroom. And if I got positive approval, the verdict was in, and I was acquitted. If not, I was just in despair. So how I did academic... Oh, yeah. So I went to Wheaton Grad School... And what happened was I started, I wasn't really believing the gospel, in other words. I think I was probably born again at age six, lying in bed, my dad tucking me in, in Des Moines, Iowa, at my grandparents' house, and dad prayed with me to receive Christ. I remember an, a huge relief, feeling a huge relief. I think that's probably when I was born, given new birth. But I, for most of my life, I haven't really believed the gospel. And actually, I, I still don't really. Um, I went to Wheaton Grad School in 2007. Uh, summer of 07, and I discovered that the habitual sin in my life, the need to be, the need, not just, uh, okay, I've done well, people are have with me all as well, but I, I had to be liked. Not, not liked so much, but approved. Um, the reason was, I wasn't believing the gospel, and what that, what that manifested itself in me in as when I was at Wheaton for the second time, was trying to get justified. This this came home to me in the summer of 2008. I was trying to get justified, already born again, trying to get justified by how I did academically. Some of you aren't in school now, so you just funnel this into your own life. What, What is it for you? that you're tempted to seek a refuge in, as Jordan says, to, seek, to get justified by. Um, I found I could, I could write a paper on uh, justification by faith alone in a New Testament doctoral seminar on Paul and justification and, and try to get it published and then seek emotionally and psychologically to get justified by publishing that paper, in which I argue you can't do that. Because we believe things at one level, but we, be- but we really believe them down here. Um, 
And I, I do feel like a toddler in that. I feel as if I'm still figuring it out. I rolled out of bed this morning. And I had to open up my Bible. Why? Because I'm a, it takes me a good night's sleep and nothing more to forget the gospel. Roll out of bed a Pharisee. Um, okay, what do I need to do to get okay today? I, I, sure hope, I sure hope people like what I say twice today. Um, and that is utter folly. And actually, that's not a sanctification issue, growth issue. That's a justification issue. My verdict is already in. It's settled. And honestly, guys, I think I can say this honestly. If you were to put me, if you were to offer me $10 million to go back to how I was living the Christian life in college and seminary before really the penny dropped on a train ride from Wheaton to St. Louis to visit my brother in summer of 08. If you were to give me ten, offer me $10 million to go back to that, I would say keep your money. To go back to that way of living the Christian life, even as, even, I'm going to be in heaven one day, okay? Even as a believer, you're in. But just live frantically your whole life not really knowing if the verdict is in. Keep your frickin' money. I don't want it. Some of you are doing this. Richard Foster, uh, does that name mean anything to you? He wrote a book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life in which he said, I didn't write the quote down, I wish I had, it's a paraphrase, but he said, um, the reason so many Christians are so radically insecure today is that we are functionally basing our justification on our sanctification rather than our sanctification on our justification. In other words, if justification is, here's the moment in time when you are set right with God, you're put right with him, you're acquitted, the court is out, verdict is in, you're good, you're good, you're okay. You're righteous, you're innocent, you're... No condemnation, no accusation. You are perfectly secure. And if sanctification is growth in godliness, getting better, improving, which is undeniably in the New Testament, we are hardwired, Richard Foster says, to base that verdict on how we're doing instead of basing our growth and our, how we're doing day by day on the finished work of Christ. And getting up and standing on that platform before anything else. Before trying to get God to really smile down on us because we've spent 30 minutes praying. And now we know he's a little, we've mitigated his disappointment in us. It's like a millionaire standing in line for food stamps. Um... I'm looking at the clock, and I think I'm going to skip this second point, the whole Bible and rest. What I wanted to do is just point out how the writer goes to Genesis 2 to talk about rest and bases our gospel Sabbath rest. It's in. We're fine. It's all right because of what Jesus did. Um, He relates that to God's, and I kind of wanted to show how that runs through the Bible, this theme of rest. In other words, how the, the message of the whole Bible, really, from one perspective is rest is here in Jesus. Um. And I think I will skip that and go to, um, yeah, 
yeah, what I want to call the pathway of rest. The pathway of rest. Um, okay, what Richard Foster is saying is that we need the doctrine of justification by faith. We need, we need to know we have ultimate rest. All along the Christian life. Because there are all these beckoning temptations to seek to be justified by other lesser things all along the Christian life. This is for all of us. This is not so for Dan, it might be getting validated, getting justified by growing numbers in the church plant. Or people really like my preaching or something like that. For me, it might be something gets Right here. How did, how did it go? I'll talk to Stacy, uh, my wife, later tonight. How did it go, Dane? Here's the temptation. Answer that existentially in my soul based on positive feedback. In, slide away from the gospel. Slide away from rest. Um, verse 10. For whoever has, a, there remains, verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest, here it is, has also rested from his, from his works, our works, as God did from his. Why would the writer to the Hebrews talk to a group of Christians about resting from our works. Why is he talking uh, resting from our works? I mean, that's gospel. Why is he talking about the gospel to a church? The answer is because the gospel of rest Soul rest, because of what Christ has done, is not a door, but a room. It's not a hotel to be passed through, but a home to be lived in. It's not a gateway you walk through. It's a pathway. That's why I said the pathway of rest. It's a pathway we walk on. Is this how you understand the Christian life as a man? Psalm 25 says this. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being. His soul shall abide in well-being. That word abide is used all through the rest of the the Old Testament. Same Hebrew word. um, To talk about people spending the night somewhere. That's what it woodenly literally means, spend the night. So in Genesis 19, when uh, uh, Lot comes to Sodom and they say, don't spend the night in the town square because you know what's going to happen. Come spend the night, the men's uh, two angels, I think it is, say, come spend the night with us. Same word as Psalm 25, his soul shall abide, shall spend the night in well-being. Only when the gospel of rest from our works, verse 10 in Hebrews 4, is a home and not a hotel, will our soul spend the night, sleep like a baby, in well-being. The word is literally good, 
spend the night in good. His soul shall spend the night in good. This is all through the the New Testament, this idea of um, we need the rest of the gospel each day as believers. This is not just something that I speak to others um, who don't belong to the church, but uh, is for us. For example, Paul told the Romans, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Why would he say that to the Romans? They knew the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Paul told the Colossians, continue in the faith, Colossians 1, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Don't don't move on. Don't graduate on. Paul told the Corinthians, I would remind you of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.1. Paul told the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, I commend you to God and the word of his grace which is able to build you up. Jesus uh, in John 6, people come to Jesus and say, what, is, uh, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. By the way, same Greek word as Hebrews 4.10, and which Paul uses all over Romans and Galatians to talk about works of the law by which we are not justified. Same Greek word. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Here's the work of God, Jesus says. We're all lined up, you know, take notes. What do I need to be doing? What's the list? Believe, let me get it right, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Guys, why does the New Testament talk about the gospel not as a shot, but as food? The answer is because we remain sinners our whole lives long, and specifically, Because we all have the same heart reflex as Michael Jordan and as the Israelites of old coming into the promised land. Thinking if I can just get my circumstances lined up the way I want them, then I will be at rest on the inside. Only Christ can do that. Only the Matthew 11 Jesus can do that. Hebrews 4 says, nothing but laying down your works, verse 10, will give you rest. Nothing but walking into the Sabbath rest, of which the literal seventh-day Sabbath rest is a shadow and a pointer. Nothing but coming to Christ um, for rest. There's that wonderful verse in Isaiah 28. I'm closing now. Uh, In Isaiah 28, where... Um, uh, God says to his people, he who believes, trusts, will not, you remember how it closes? Be in haste. What an amazing verse. Because I would expect it to say, he who believes will not be condemned. And that's true. It's just not what that verse says. He who believes will not be in haste. And Paul, the apostle, takes that verse and quotes it in Romans 10 and changes it and says, he who believes in him, and in context he's talking about Christ, will not be in haste. Which is where this passage ends too, on Jesus. Let me close by reading these few verses, these few um, oxygen-giving verses here at the end of the chapter where we are told 
um, how we can have rest in someone else in someone else earning it for us. Verse fourteen. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near to the throne of rest, of peace, of what Hara'o Anoda did not realize was his if he just accepted it that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, would you make this land on our hearts if this is true? This is true. If it's true, then let us believe more than just that it's true, but let us feel that it is true and live accordingly. And we ask you to do that by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.